Ah, you hear those bagpipes, don't you? That's next week, so uh, we're looking forward to that. Wear your tartans, your plaids. Uh, it'll be very appropriate for next week. If you're just joining us, we are um, two-thirds, perhaps, maybe even three-quarters of the way through a sermon series that we've been preaching on the entire sweep of the Bible. Uh, it's called Long Story Short, and we've been looking at various portions of the Old and New Testament and getting the whole story. Today, I'd like to read the scripture uh, for our focus, which is on the cross, but I'd like to do it in a different way. You know, there's an ancient custom in the church that when the gospel is read, it's brought into the center of the people, and the people then are invited to stand as a sign of reverence and respect for Jesus Christ. So if you're able, may I invite you to stand as we read the gospel? This is the crucifixion of Jesus according to Luke in chapter 23. As the soldiers led Jesus away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. It's a bit of a truism, and perhaps it goes without saying, but the cross is central in the life of the church. 
Imagine if a stranger came into our midst, someone who knew nothing about Christianity, nothing about our history, our symbolism, came into our midst and observed closely. Think about where they would see the cross. In this case, they would see this dramatic, giant cross above us. Surely they would see how important that cross is to us. It's central, it's powerful, it represents something, and they would take note. They would see some of us wearing crosses and realize this must be very important. And you would see these represented throughout the Christian churches in stained glass and in art and in symbolism. The cross is central to the Christian faith. But why? We could spend weeks on this subject. And you know, I think maybe one way would be to go back in time, for example, and think about how surprising it is that the cross is our central symbol. Historically, in the ancient world, a cross was barbaric. It was an unspeakable horror. It was invented by the Persians and then adopted by the Romans. It was the cruelest way to kill someone. Think about it. First, the person was humiliated by being stripped naked. Then they were flogged and tortured almost to the point of death. It was a way to hopefully make their crucifixion suffering shorter. Then they had to carry their cross beam through the crowds, subject to their insults. And then they were crucified. A nail was put through the wrist of each arm and through the ankles, and then they were hoisted high up on, on the central beam. And there they didn't die so much by bleeding to death. No, they died by suffocating to death. Because what would happen is that they would put a little pedestal under the feet of the victim and in order to breathe, they would have to push up from time to time to get a lung full of air, and then they would be weakened and they would slump back down and the nails would dig deeper. And so what they literally did by going up and down is they, they suffocated. And sometimes the, those who crucified them were merciful because they would break their legs and then they could no longer push up anymore and the death was shortened. And if that weren't enough, then they often left the victims on the crosses after they had died, for the birds to peck at them, at their bodies. And then often they weren't given a decent burial. They were simply cast aside into a garbage dump or by the side of the road for the wild animals to eat. How is it that such a gruesome symbol, such a, a symbol of torture, could become the center of our hopeful faith? How is that? To answer that question, we need to understand and unpack the meaning of the cross, and I would like to suggest we do it in two ways. Objectively, and ask, what did the cross mean? Why was it necessary, and what did it achieve? And then subjectively, what difference does the cross make for our lives? Why, and or in what way does it help us? Let's think about this. Objectively, Christ's cross, number one, satisfies God's justice. In the Old Testament, God is depicted as many things. God is uh, certainly just. God refuses to let sin be winked at or excused simply. God must uh, ask for a penalty or a punishment for sin. And God is holy. God is holy. God invites human beings into relationship with God, but uh, requires that they be holy too. And so there are systems of of rules and regulations, 613 commands, 10 commandments in particular, and these define holiness. And when, as they so often are, these commandments are broken, then God exacts punishment. 
And God has a system for this, which is through animal sacrifice. God is merciful as well as just. And so an animal is then offered in sacrifice for human sin. Uh, Leviticus 17.11 is such a, a central verse to remind us of this. Leviticus 17.11 goes like this. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This is the beginning of what paves the way for the cross of Jesus Christ. A just God must punish sin in order to preserve holiness, and God does this through the shedding of the blood of an innocent creature, in this case a lamb. The trouble is, however, that in Israel, the the people had to keep offering the same sacrifices year after year because they, they kept on sinning. And so something was necessary to right the wrongs once and for all. And this gets us ready for the cross of Christ. So number one, objectively, the cross of Christ satisfies God's justice, but it does a second thing. Number two, it atones for our sin. God provides in Jesus Christ a means of forgiveness for all human beings, not just the Jews. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity to teach the Roots Communion class for our fourth and fifth graders. And it, uh, we have a class that prepares them for communion and also for baptism in some cases. And it was a delight to be with them. And today, that class at the 915 service took communion, many of them for the first time. It was really wonderful. But we showed this film that I'm going to show to you, to the class. And what I like about it is it links up the Old Testament Passover with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is foreshadowed in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. Let's take a look at this story of Passover. God's story, Passover. So part of God's story is about Passover, and it goes like this. It all started when the Israelites were stuck as slaves in Egypt. They were forced to work in fields and make bricks and mortar. Worse, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, and the other people in charge didn't care if God's family was hot or tired or hungry or sad or hurt or just plain miserable. And they were. But even in the middle of all that, God's family grew. In fact, they got so big that Pharaoh was scared they might attack and overpower him. He made them work even harder to show them he was boss. Soon the Israelites were even more miserable. They begged God for help. Well, guess what? God saw what Pharaoh was doing to his family, and he didn't like it one bit. So he planned a rescue. He sent a man named Moses to lead God's family out of Egypt and into a brand new, beautiful home called the Promised Land. But when Moses told Pharaoh to let God's family leave, Pharaoh said no. Remember, Pharaoh thought he was the boss. The thing is, God is really in control, and even rulers of countries should obey him. So nine different times, God sent plagues to show Pharaoh his power. The plagues were like punishments to Egypt for keeping God's family as slaves. After each one, Moses asked Pharaoh to let God's family go, but Pharaoh kept saying no. Then Moses told Pharaoh that God loves his family so much that he will rescue them no matter how many times Pharaoh refused to obey. So there would be one more plague, one that would wipe out the oldest son in every house in Egypt. But of course, God had a special plan for his family. He told them to take their best lamb or young goat, kill it, and paint the blood on the doorframe. Then they should eat the meat with bitter herbs and some flat bread made without yeast called unleavened bread, which is cheap and can be made quickly. In fact, God asked his family to eat the whole meal as if they were ready to run right out the door, 
with their shoes on and their walking sticks in hand. They obeyed. Good thing, too, because that very night the angel of death came. But just like God promised, he passed over the houses with blood on the door. Finally, Pharaoh realized God was in charge and that God loved his family and that Pharaoh couldn't stop God's rescue plan. He said God's family should get far away from Egypt. They left in a hurry. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after that, God's family celebrated the night God rescued them by eating unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and lamb. But that rescue was just a preview to the big rescue God had planned for the whole world. Remember, the ruler of this world, the devil, wants us to work for him and live bitter, sad lives, separated from God. And we all do wrong things sometimes and deserve to die as punishment. So God sent his very own son to earth. He lived the perfect life we should have lived and died the awful death we should have died. But three days after he died, Jesus came back to life. That means he got rid of death and it can't separate us from God anymore. And you know what? Right before Jesus died, he celebrated Passover one last time, but without the lamb. See, Jesus showed us that he is our lamb. And just like the lambs died so that the sons could stay with their families, Jesus died so that we can be part of God's family. One day he'll recreate a perfect home for us and it'll be even better than the promised land. And that's the story of Passover. Isn't that something? It really captures some significant and absolutely critical truths about the Passover. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is rooted in Passover. Uh, I thought it was very uh, important that the video said that that Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived, and Jesus died the awful death we should have died. You see, Jesus is depicted in the New Testament as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have uh, in my study here at the church a very famous depiction of the crucifixion. Perhaps you've seen it. It's called the Isenheim Altarpiece. And if you attend Men's Life, we're going to unpack this in a lot of detail this coming Tuesday. But it uh, was painted in 1515. It's part of a giant altarpiece that opens in the border between France and Germany. And it's very curious because John the Baptist is depicted there on the right. And, of course, at the time of the crucifixion, he would have been dead for a number of years. But there he points, points to Jesus, who's uh, graphically depicted for the first time, really, in art history, uh, in this gruesome, tortured way of his death on the cross. And John the Baptist, of course, utters those famous words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we call atonement. Atonement. And atonement has been broken out into three parts, often by some who have said that it really is meant to be at one That God is distant from us because of our sin and that what God longs to have happen in our lives is for us to be made at one with God. And the way for this to occur is through the shedding of the blood of an innocent victim. And so this is atonement. Some of you know uh, it in, in this way, the depiction of the bridge, often used in evangelism. Human beings on the left, because of their sin, uh, have been marked by death, and uh, this creates a gap between us and a holy God. But God bridges this gap because God wants us to be at one with him through Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, and through his death on the cross. And then this, this creates a bridge back for us that with faith we pass over onto the other side. And so this is another way to think about atonement or atonement. I particularly like the way C.S. Lewis did this in his children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Many of you have read these. And you know in the very first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
that uh, the story goes something like this. Uh, the three, or excuse me, four Pavenzi children, these English children during World War II, uh, have been sent away from London where uh, they were uh, being bombed out to their uh, relative's house. And they're playing one day and they, they find this great wardrobe and they go through the wardrobe and they find themselves uh, out the backside in the land of Narnia. And then what happens during the course of the story is that Edmund, one of the children, um, betrays his his uh, two sisters and one brother, to the white witch, who is a, a symbol or a figure of the devil. And because of that, they're betrayed into her hands, and this is just a grievous sin, and Edmund will have to pay for this in the justice that rules the land of Narnia. But thankfully, someone steps in to rescue Edmund, and it's Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure. And so Aslan, as you may recall, those of you who've read it, is, uh, is judged, and then he's mocked, and he's shaved. His, his great uh, mane is shaved and trimmed off, and then he's tied down on the stone table, which becomes a symbol of the Old Testament law and its requirements. And then we pick up the story watching uh, Lucy and Susan ministering to the dead body of Aslan on the stone table. Let's take a look. knew the true meaning of sacrifice she might have interpreted the deep magic differently that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards to me that's brilliant listen to those words again when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. Jesus Christ is the one who knew no sin, whom God made to be sin for our sake, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the atonement teaches, and this is what Jesus Christ has done. So, objectively, the, Christ, or the cross of Christ, rather, satisfies God's justice. It atones 
for our sin. And then lastly, it demonstrates God's love. You know, God, I think, in communicating love to us, is more concerned about action than about feeling. So many of us want to feel a certain way with respect to God's love, but what God wants to do instead is to show us his love. And the chief means by which God does this is through the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, verse 10 says this, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, in the last two services, we celebrated this truth by singing uh, that marvelous hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And it has that refrain that we sing repeatedly throughout. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And it's true. And so the cross does all of these things. The cross objectively satisfies God's justice, it atones for our sin, and it demonstrates God's love. But what difference does this really make for you and for me? We now need to think very briefly about the subjective difference the cross makes. Subjectively, the cross, number one, tells us, tells us we're loved. John 3.16 is so familiar to us. Many of us can quote it by heart. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen, amen. But it's legitimate for you to put your name in there. For God so loved Carl. For God so loved Jenny. For God so loved your name that he did these things. And it's true. As many have thought and said, if you were the only person that had sinned and needed to be redeemed, God would have sent Jesus to die for you. It's true. The cross tells us that we're loved, and this is why we wear crosses, and we wear them often around our neck, close to our heart, to remind us that sometimes despite evidence to the contrary, God in fact does love us, and we remind ourselves of this by wearing a cross. Some of our brothers and sisters cross themselves as a reminder. And you know, we as Protestants don't tend to do this, but there's really no reason we couldn't. Why not? If we're remembering the cross of Jesus Christ, why couldn't we cross ourselves as a reminder that he has died to save our whole selves, our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. The cross communicates to us that we're loved. But secondly, it shows us that we're forgiven. Forgiven. I really appreciate this verse from the message. Eugene Peterson, who uh, paraphrased the New Testament and also the whole Bible, wrote this. Uh, Eugene is now gone to glory, died recently in the last two weeks. But what a great way of translating this important verse. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive, right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. Listen, I know my heart. And I know enough about all of our hearts to know that you and I often bear burdens of guilt that are crushing. There are things that you and I have done in our past that we regret deeply. And the scars and the consequences of those things weigh us down. They may be weighing you down this morning. Well, I am here to remind you, and the cross is my authority for doing this, that God forgives your sin in Jesus Christ. You cannot out-sin the cross of Christ. 
God's forgiveness and mercy shed in Jesus Christ covers all sin, past, present, future. So if you're bearing something this day, go to the cross. Acknowledge simply and humbly what has happened and ask Christ to forgive you, and he promises to do this. The cross shows us that we're forgiven. And then finally, thirdly, it reminds us that we're not alone. So many of us, when we suffer, feel like we're all alone. You know, pain does that, doesn't it? Especially chronic pain. When you are suffering chronic pain, you feel like you're out of the stream of of normal life. There are all the other people who aren't suffering over here, and you're by yourself alone here. And you can feel like there's nobody with you. But the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus knows pain. He knows human pain. If you've struggled to breathe, he knows what that's like. If you've struggled with inability to walk, he knows what that's like. If you've struggled in any way, physically, he identifies with you and with me. Furthermore, emotionally, if you feel left out and lonely, like all your friends have abandoned you, Jesus knows what it's like. And spiritually, if you think that God is distant and God, God doesn't seem real to you, think about what Jesus felt in the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross is our reminder that we are not alone in suffering. And this is a, a great word of hope to us and to those we care about. So subjectively, the cross tells us that we're loved. It shows us that we're forgiven and it reminds us that we're not alone. There's so much more that we could say. We've only begun to scratch the surface. We could preach an 11-week series just on the cross alone. But hopefully this has been helpful to remind you in some cases or maybe even uh, reveal to you for the first time some of the truths that Jesus has brought to us in the cross. You know, all of this is uh, made or is symbolized here at the table of our Lord. For here we have a, a communion table that was born in the Passover feast. Jesus was at a Passover meal when he celebrated communion with his disciples. And Jesus transformed that Seder meal into the Lord's Supper. He was at that Seder meal celebrating Passover with his disciples when he he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took one of the Seder cups. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, the new relationship with God in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul adds that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this simple and profound meal, a meal that points back in history to the Passover and points forward in history to the great messianic feast to come in the new heaven and the new earth. Grant us, we pray, the gift of your presence as we celebrate this supper with you and for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to celebrate communion by intinction or dipping, and uh, you'll be dismissed, I think, and then come on up, uh, come from the sides, and then go back to your seat through the center aisle. The bread is allergen-free, so come on up, everybody, and come to one of the stations, and let us eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Will the servers come forward?